All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of First Peter. And today is the day. We have a big announcement. We've been working for months on getting the study hub up and operational to a point where we could launch it, even though we're going to keep adding more and more material to it. Today is the day. So if you are looking for more than the audio, if you're looking for a central place where you could just study the Bible on your own and not have to jump all over the internet hoping to find trustworthy information out there, uh, then I would encourage you to swing on over and check out the Listener's Commentary Study Hub. Here's the way it works. When you go to the listenerscommentary.com, up in the upper right corner, there'll be a button that says Study Hub. Click sign up on that button. Type in your information to sign up. You'll get a confirmation email, so check your inbox. Once you get that confirmation email, click that. It'll send you immediately back to the Listener's Commentary website, and then you just have to click Login, put in your login credentials, and you'll be able to access the Study Hub from there. There is a ton of material inside the Study Hub already, uh, but there's going to be more and more added in the months and years ahead. And so there's uh, a free Bible study skills course of my online courses. There's a discount code to my online courses. There's maps, there's charts, there's articles, there's links to other resources, all of which will help you have a more full and deeper and clearer understanding of what the Bible books are talking about so that you can learn it, so that you can live it, and so that maybe through a Bible study or through a sermon or in discipling your kids or whatever it is, you can share the Bible with others as well. So check it out. That's the Study Hub if it sounds like something that would be helpful to you in studying the Bible for yourself. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. In the last section, Peter focused on how Christians should live in relation to the surrounding world around them. What does it look like to be doers of good in and around town? Clearly, in the background to Peter's instructions in that section, there was the assumption that hostility, ridicule, mistreatment for their faith in Jesus were very real possibilities. Probably plenty of them were actually already experiencing that. So, over the next handful of paragraphs, Peter is going to deal with that kind of hostility and focus on how we should respond to that. How should Christians think about and deal with hostility towards them for their faith in Jesus. That's the topic that begins here in chapter 3, verse 13, and really extends through the lion's share of the rest of the book. Now, before we look at what Peter says about that, beginning here in chapter 3, verse 13, I need to make it really, really clear that um, Peter is specifically talking about hostility, ridicule, marginalization specifically for our beliefs in Jesus, for our way of life as followers of Jesus. Peter has already pointed out in his instructions to servants in chapter 2 that suffering for doing foolish and wrong things is not what he's talking about. And he's going to continue to make that point here. He's not talking about just general suffering because you made a bad choice or you made an unwise decision. He's not just talking about general suffering uh, even that comes about because we live in a broken, fallen world, although some of what he says here can pertain to that. Um, what he's specifically talking about is when you are treated badly because you're trying to follow Jesus and do what Jesus wants you to do. 
You see, the further a culture is from God, or the more hostile a culture is to Christ, then the more what followers of Jesus believe and what followers of Jesus think about what's true and good and right just looks odd. Um, And then Christians themselves uh, are treated as like social misfits, social outsiders. Their beliefs and their way of life are often then mocked Uh, And thus they experience different degrees of, different kinds of social rejection, social hostility, social marginalization. The way it looked in their culture for Peter's original audience and the way it looks in your culture or my culture might be a little bit different in the details, but this is often the way it works. The further a culture is from God, the more hostile a culture is to Christ, then the more what Christians think and believe about what is good and right and true and makes sense of the world just is viewed as odd and sometimes treated with hostility. So, how should followers of Jesus think about and deal with hostility towards them because of their faith in Jesus? Well, here's what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? So, verse 13 really is saying, generally speaking, this is the way things work. Um, Like, generally speaking, if you're known for doing good, if you're a person who follows Peter's instructions and gives a blessing instead of a curse, right? If when people harm you, you actually do good for them. If they insult you, you actually wish well for them and want to help them out. And you're just known in your neighborhood, known in your community as just being benevolent, kind-hearted, and a doer of good. Generally speaking, people aren't going to want to harm you. But not always, as the next verse makes clear. So, um, if we're known for doing good, generally speaking, it helps our reputation. But not always if they're opposed to our beliefs, if they're opposed to the Christian way of life. And so, Peter then follows this up in verse 14 by saying, But if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. In other words, generally speaking, People aren't going to want to harm you if you're actually eager and zealous and known for doing good, but not always. Sometimes you could still be doing the right things and being uh, doing uh, the things of Jesus in your neighborhood, and you still could suffer for it. And if that's the case, you're blessed. You're blessed. In fact, that word blessed connects to the, the previous paragraph that wrapped up the last section about inheriting a blessing, right? Like when you bless others who curse you, you will inherit a blessing. It actually reminds us of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the very last of the Beatitudes that opens the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, he goes on and says, for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Peter learned this from Jesus and really echoes his words here by saying, if this happens to you, you are blessed. And that word blessed is makarios in Greek. It's the idea of good fortune on you. It's the idea of it'll be well for you. God's favor is upon you. And so if you're living for Jesus and you're doing good 
and you still suffer mistreatment, right? Like if you're doing the things Peter told you to, and you're still treated with hostility, you're still treated badly, or people harm you for it, it doesn't mean something has gone wrong. It actually means good fortune on you, God's favor on you. Then Peter actually, from there, offers some guidance on how to respond. So that's how we should think about it. We should realize that sometimes that's just the way it goes. People who are far from God sometimes treat people who are trying to follow God in ways that are poor. And if that's the case, good favor on you, right? Uh, And then Peter begins to say, and here's some advice on how you should respond should this happen to you. In fact, he actually says, should this happen to you? And then For whatever reason, someone asks you, why do you have so much faith and hope in Jesus? Here's how you should respond. Here's what you should do. So this is what Peter says, beginning in the second half of verse 14. He says, and do not fear their intimidation and do not be in dread. And with this phrase, Peter is um, beginning to interact with Isaiah chapter 8, specifically Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. So this phrase, do not fear their intimidation and do not be in, in dread, uh, echoes Isaiah 8, 12. The next phrase that begins verse 15 comes from Isaiah 8, 13. In fact, Peter's already quoted from Isaiah 8 earlier in his letter in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. He quoted from Isaiah And so the chapter, Isaiah 8, is on Peter's mind as he writes this letter. And so here he's going to interact with this little section out of Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. Let's put it in its original context. Whenever you come across an Old Testament passage in the New Testament, it's really good to look back at it in the Old Testament and say, what's the context? What's going on there? Because Peter has the whole context in mind. He's, he just knows this book of Isaiah, and he's, he's kind of reflecting on all of this. Well, in Isaiah chapter 8, what's going on is all the people uh, are fearing the threats of invasion and attack from the surrounding nations. So that's what they're, they're fearing. Like, the, the surrounding nations are threatening war and attack on them, and there's a certain level of fear and dread about that. And not only that, you have prophets being sent by God saying, look, don't, don't make alliances with other nations who you think will help you in these battles against the surrounding nations. Instead, you need to trust God. And the people were like, you prophets are crazy, and you're actually, it seems like, leading a conspiracy to bring us into our demise by saying we should be foolish and not make alliances with places like Egypt and some of that. So God tells Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 8, look, don't walk in the way of the people around you. Don't fear what they fear. That's literally how the, the Greek phrase reads here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Don't fear what they fear. Or maybe uh, don't fear the fear of them. The things that, that are uh, fearful to them don't have that kind of fear. And in fact, what God tells Isaiah there in Isaiah 8 is, Instead of fearing the things that the people around you fear, you should fear the Lord and trust him. In fact, God says there in Isaiah 8 that you should recognize God as holy. 
Yahweh is holy and that God is a sanctuary for the righteous, that God is a place of safe refuge for the righteous. So fear the Lord, trust him. He's your refuge. That's why you shouldn't fear the nations. So Peter has all of this in mind when he quotes the passage here in verse 14. And so that means Peter isn't saying, so toughen up, don't be afraid. No, what Peter is saying is, don't fear them because you have somebody bigger, stronger, and greater that you fear. You fear the Lord himself. He's your sanctuary. He's your safe haven. You trust in him and fear him. Don't fear the people who oppose you and treat you badly because of your faith in Jesus. That's what he means when he says, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be in dread. And then he goes on in verse 15 to quote, Isaiah 8, 13, and he says this, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And this really comes right, right out of what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 8, verse 13, that you sanctify the Lord, Christ as Lord. There, it's actually, you sanctify Yahweh as holy. You treat him as holy. The idea of sanctify is to regard or to treat as holy. In other words, set the Lord himself apart in your hearts as the Holy One. He's your sanctuary in Isaiah 8.13. It's Yahweh that is uh, holy. He's the one that is going to be your protector. Here, Peter, in verse 15, actually puts Christ in the place of Yahweh from Isaiah 8.13, which tells us an awful lot about how Peter views Jesus, that Jesus really stands in and does the work of Yahweh himself. So he's the one we set apart as holy. And Isaiah 8 clarifies that setting Christ apart as holy includes fearing him and not fearing the nations around you, not fearing the people around you. Christ is the Holy One. He is our place of refuge. And so in the face of opposition, in the face of hostility, in the face of ridicule, what Peter says is, fear Christ, treat him and regard him as holy. And then Peter says this in the second half of verse 18. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. And so putting that in the whole context of what Peter has been saying if you're doing good and you're following Jesus and you're walking in his way and you're loving your enemies and you're blessing those who curse you and you're doing all of that and you're trusting in the Lord and you're setting him apart as holy and you're just calmly and confidently living for Jesus and somebody who opposes you looks at your way of life and your belief system is odd or weird and they're, they're struck by your reverence for and your trust in Jesus and they just ask you, like, why do you believe in him so much? Why do you trust him so much? Should that ever happen? Peter says, be prepared, be ready to make a defense. And that phrase, make a defense, translates the Greek word apologia, from which we get our word apologetics. And apologetics is the idea of the reasons for your faith. What's the evidence or the reasons for believing in Jesus? And so Peter says here that should somebody ask you why it is that you regard Christ as holy and you trust in him, be prepared to give a reason for that. Um, the basic idea of apologia in Greek is to give a reasoned defense for something. Uh, 
So when someone wants to know why you believe what you believe, this verse tells us that we need to be prepared to explain the reasons for the hope we have in Jesus. And for Peter, when you like look at the book of Acts and how Peter would do that, or you look at the book of Acts and you see how Paul would do that, uh, what you see is at the center of their reasons is the resurrection of Jesus. Like our hope stands on the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's already said that in chapter 1, verse 3, right? Like we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so as we are prepared to give the reasons for the hope that we have, the ultimate reason for that is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the ultimate basis for our hope and for our faith. So we need to be able to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and have hope in him because Jesus rose from the dead. And then if they ask for more, well, we need to be be able to give the reasons we're convinced of that. That's just terribly, terribly important for being able to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Peter also tells us here that we need to be able to do this with gentleness and respect. Like the idea is consideration for them, graciousness and respectfulness, not snarky, not sarcastic, not rude or demeaning or like, well, it's just plain obvious. Anybody can know that, right? No, we need to be able to gently, thoughtfully, respectfully give the reasons for why we have the hope and the faith that we have in Jesus. Then Peter goes on in verse 16 and says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Grammatically, verse 16 is a further explanation of how we're to give our defense. It's what's called a participle in grammar, right? And so it's like a verbal adjective explaining how do you give your de defense? Well, you give your defense with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. And the idea of a good conscience and the idea of your good way of life or your good behavior connects with what Peter said in the preceding large section where he talked about, let your way of life be so good and so excellent that uh, in the thing in which they slander you, they will actually glorify God in the day that they have to give account, the day that God visits us, right? Like, so our way of life, this is not just talking about do it with gentleness and respect. It is that, but it's also that our good conscience comes from following Peter's instructions so far in this letter and to live good, helpful, um, gracious lives in town. It comes from interacting with uh, the unbelievers around us gracefully and gently and respectfully. And so he says that have a good conscience as you do this because of your way of life. And, and then he says, notice the end, so that those who disparage your good behavior in Christ, those who speak ill of your manner of life in Christ and the goodness of it will be put to shame. In an honor and shame culture such as theirs, being treated with shame is like a huge deal. So while believers are being treated shamefully by, uh, they're being treated disgracefully, in other words, by maybe society around them who oppose them, mock them, ridicule them, speak ill of their beliefs and all of that, Ultimately, if they follow Jesus's way of doing good and blessing those who curse them, then the followers of Jesus will be honored, honored specifically by God himself, 
And those who attack them, Peter says here, they'll be put to shame. They'll be the ones who experience ultimate and final shame. So believers need to continue to be doers of good, even if they suffer for it. And that's what Peter says then in verse 17. He says, For it's better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right. That's our phrase, doing good, right? That you suffer for being doers of good rather than for doing what's wrong. So if God wills it, if God permits, like because God is sovereign, whatever happens in this world, God either allows or causes, right? Like, God prevents plenty of things from happening, but whatever does happen, God either permits it to happen, God causes it to happen. So should we suffer for the sake of our faith in Jesus, God's not causing it, but he's allowing it to happen. So if God permits hostility, mistreatment, ridicule for following Jesus, Peter says, that's a good thing. It's better for you if God should allow that to happen. And then once again, Peter's going to ground all of this, this pattern of doing good and trusting God while suffering. He's going to ground it all in the example or the pattern of Jesus. So in the following verses, verses 18 through the end of the chapter, Peter points out Jesus' death, resurrection, and exaltation as the pattern and as the basis for our deliverance, for our salvation. That's the general idea of what's going on in verses 18 through 22. But what Peter says and the way he says it turns out to be probably, most definitely, the the trickiest thing in the entire letter. So verses 18 through 22 of this section is really a tricky, tricky little passage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole thing. Then I want to make some general comments about how it fits into the context here, what it's doing in the context here, because I think that's really, really important. And then in the next recording, I'm going to deal with a bunch of the tricky details, all right? So that's how we're going to do this and just sort this out. So let's hear it right now in the context and the point that it's making here, and we'll deal with some of the difficult stuff in the next recording. So verse 18 begins with hati in Greek. That is the word because. In other words, it's giving the reason it's better to suffer for doing good rather than for doing bad. And the reason is the example of Jesus. So let me read the whole thing. It says this, because, verse 18, Christ also suffered for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So there's the whole little chunk. I'm sure as I read it, you heard some things like, what does that mean? What does that, wait, why does he say that? As I noted, this is a tricky little section, the trickiest in the whole letter. So we'll look at the tricky parts in the next recording. But for now, let's just try to hear it in its context and see if we can't sort out at least the main point Peter is doing from this. So as I noted before I read, 
This section is giving the reason it's better to suffer for doing good rather than bad. That's its logical function in the flow of thought. That's why it begins with the word for or because in verse 18. So the question then is, well, what's the reason? Why is it better to suffer for doing good rather than doing bad based on what's said here in verses 18 through 22? And here's some of the things Peter says. I'm just going to mention four things that Peter says in this short little section. He says, well, it's better because Christ also suffered for the sake of righteousness. Like, it's better because you're imitating Jesus and you're following his example and you're walking in his way. Jesus did this, so it's better that we should do it too. Um, He also says, number two, that it's better because Uh, Jesus' suffering like this is how he brought us to God. In other words, God used Jesus' suffering for the sake of righteousness for our good. He brought good out of it. That's how God brought about salvation in the world was through Jesus suffering for the sake of righteousness. And so God has the ability to use suffering for the sake of righteousness to bring good about in the world. He did it for Jesus. He could do it through us. Not only that, number three, um, it's better to suffer for the sake of doing good rather than bad uh, because Jesus' suffering was the way Jesus achieved and demonstrated his victory over the evil powers. That seems to be what's going on in this middle section about making proclamation to the spirits in prison. It's clearly what's going on at the end of the section of verse 22, where Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he's uh, now exalted over angels and authorities and powers. They've all been subjected to him. And so Jesus' suffering for the sake of righteousness achieved and demonstrated his ultimate victory over all the dark, evil powers. And lastly, Jesus' suffering wasn't the end. Um, Yes, he suffered for the sake of righteousness. He suffered clear to the point of death, but that wasn't the end of the story. He was raised from the dead, and that's mentioned here as well, right? Like that he brought about our salvation through his resurrection and through his exaltation. And so, Even though he suffered for the sake of righteousness, it wasn't the end of the story for him. He is now the highest king of the universe. And so the suffering of Christ led to victory, and therefore our suffering with Christ leads to our deliverance and our victory as well. And that seems to be the main point of verses 18 through 22 in context. In fact, the very next paragraph in chapter 4 actually will draw out some of the implications of this victory and says that this victory even includes victory over sin even now. And so if we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we're in good company. Uh, We're in the company of Jesus, and his suffering is what brought about our salvation and what culminated in his victory and thus our victory. That seems to be the point. But, as I've already said, Peter says some interesting and tricky things in making that point. And so, we'll deal with those in the next recording. But here, let me just wrap up this whole little paragraph by saying this. Because Jesus suffered for you and for me, the righteous for the unrighteous, we can and we should consecrate him as our Holy One. 
as our place of safety and security and refuge in the midst of whatever difficulties we experience in life, particularly even in the midst of hostility and opposition for our faith in him. And so as we fix our gaze on him, we know we can trust him. We know we can trust him to take care of us because he laid down his life for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Even if all the world turns against us, Jesus is for us. And so we can live with confidence and security because we know him and we know that he has literally loved us to death. And so I would just encourage you as you reflect on this this passage here to, to fix your gaze on him. Set him apart as Lord in your hearts. Consecrate him as holy. Honor him with your life. And in the end, his victory will be your victory. And honor, not shame, will be yours and will be mine.